Welcome to the Attack Action Podcast, where we talk about friendship, fun times, and most importantly, flesh and blood. Here are your hosts, Taylor and Isaac. Hello, Attactioneers. I'm joined always by my best friend, Isaac. What's up, dude? Just coming off a long weekend of really enjoyable flesh and blood games. Yeah, so we got to participate in some PQs this weekend, and we literally just pulled into Isaac's house maybe 30 minutes ago or something like that. Um, We played in Santa Clara in that game castle in Sacramento. Shout out to those doors. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. Um, It was great to see the community there. I still have a little bit of, I don't know, road brain. We were just... On the road, hanging out, driving, playing games, whirlwind back here. Totally. We've been up to our necks, up to our eyeballs in flesh and blood for <laughs> the last four days. We spent the whole drive down talking about flesh and blood, woke up, played flesh and blood all day, hung out with the homies, had dinner afterwards, talking about flesh and blood, and then rinse and repeat on Sunday drove home today talking about flesh and blood basically the whole time and now we're gonna podcast about flesh and blood so yeah well in the midst of spoiler season and the uh very good timing they have with that it really kept us uh you know titillated oh yeah totally so i put this on twitter but um we're coming into sacramento late at night in like five minutes before our turn yeah taylor's driving i'm navigating (laughs) spoilers are are flying off the hinges on our phone notifications switch to discord (laughs) both of us stopped thinking about the road totally and just missed our exit and added like 40 (laughs) minutes to our drive (laughs) not not because we were so like without uh a place to exit but because for some reason at night Nobody is working on on-ramps or off-ramps in Sacramento, but they're all closed. So we had to drive all around to freaking just go east. It was crazy, but it was like pretty funny. Yeah, totally. On today's episode, we are going to be continuing our series on draft. So if you haven't heard part one, go listen to that. We talk kind of um, about the beginner tips on draft and kind of break it down um, from a basic level. On this episode, we're going to go deeper into certain topics like card evaluation, identifying what cards are bombs, uh, drafting drafting a deck, not just cards, reading your seat, kind of going more in depth on that, and then uh, kind of the round-by-round gameplay that you can then expect after having gone through a draft. Um, Hopefully without too much overlap. Um, we might touch on things we discussed in the last pod, but this is definitely, you know, the, the round two. So go study up on the first round. Exactly. 
Um, so we won't be talking about any of the new spoilers that are dropping right now. We're recording this on Monday, two days left in uh, spoiler season. But if you have not seen our uh, spoiler reaction step, go over to our YouTube page. We have a uh, video podcast with our best friend and producer, Colin, called The Reaction Step. And uh, we usually have kind of a bit of a shorter form, single subject uh, video pod over there. Um, And the most recent episode will be about our favorite spoilers from spoiler season. Um, So if you want our hot takes and to see our handsome faces, head over there to the YouTube page to check that one out. Yep. Yep. In other news, I'm sure as everybody uh, knows and is rejoicing, uh, both Starvo and Chain have hit Living Legend, really shattering this meta wide open right as we have a new set drop. So uh, I am personally extremely excited, both for, both for the upcoming limited play, but also for the really incredibly um, diverse and healthy meta we're about to walk into. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's really incredible. It's like more... This is probably the most excited I've been for a classic constructed meta. Um, You know, two really dominant heroes leaving. We have an influx of brand new cards. Um, We have, you know, some theories about what is going to be kind of the most powerful decks that you need to beat. Um it's it's awesome it's like everything you want you know you anything can happen and uh yeah it's a great time to be a flesh and blood player right now in this very moment yeah definitely we're also seeing um we're not going to get into this this episode but we're seeing the introduction of some new mechanics that will hopefully um kind of expand how the game works and introduce a bit more uh interaction and um different pacing for different matchups um to really like diversify you know sometimes a bit of a rock paper scissors or polarized um meta or matchups you can be in um, i'm really excited about uh, some of the new mechanics yeah it's it's, it's hopefully going to be it's gonna be great can't wait yeah in other news rotanat season is quickly coming upon us in july four out of the five weekends in July are going to be road to nationals and some of them are going to be draft which is super exciting Um, a level playing field it's not going to be so top heavy Uh, there's you know we're going to have to test in a different way for these sort of things I think it's just really cool especially with Leal being a dual format and we know nationals are dual formats also it's great to have this kind of uh, you know, next tier above an armory or a skirmish of limited competitive play that's not sealed, it's draft. So, um, you know, it's really great for our podcast series we have coming out. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I for sure called this on our last episode with Tommy Fresh, and that was before we had seen the like retailer news that Road to Nationals was going to be limited. So, ha. Yeah, and just um, just judging by, uh, you know, looking back on the Aria set and how complex the, and, you know, 
I don't know, story, the exploration of that limited set was, I'm really excited for Uprising, right? Because that set came out, it was like, everybody's hammering on Briar. And then, uh, you know, Fatigue Old Him comes out. And then after everybody's competing for those two archetypes, you can kind of spike it with uh, being the only Lexi at the table. Yeah. And all of these developments were not immediately obvious and like took months for people to really discover and explore. So uh, I look forward to a similar, you know, similarly deep um, experience with Uprising, kind of, you know, discovering new interactions and archetypes and ways we can, uh, you know, get tricky. Yeah, it's going to be really great. I mean, me and you love Limited so much, and I'm just really excited to... uh, well, for us, okay, so this is the situation me and you run into and in which we've talked about at length this weekend, but uh, we have like no pro quests or road to nationals in our like immediate area. We got to drive four to six hours for the closest ones. And so it's really hard to know like regionally what those <laughs> classic constructed metas are going to be like. So in this circumstance, we just have to be good at drafting uprising which we totally can do in practice. So I'm really excited for that to be, you know, part of the competitive aspect of this game. And drafting is just so much fun. You get like freaking sweet cards and stuff. Yeah, you're a bit at the mercy of your table and the cards sometimes, but that's like pretty heavily mitigated. And then it's just a level playing field and you're all on the spot in the moment. It's really... uh, but it's just so much fun that I don't know. I don't feel like I feel much pressure drafting because it's just like it's kind of relaxed. You're just like you're not bringing your own deck and worried about your matchups or like your gem for or, you know any of this yeah, stuff. Yeah. You just sit down with nothing and open a pack. Yeah, and it all kind of resets at least in my brain. You know. Yeah, I can't. I can't agree more with that. So, uh, yeah. just awesome. Uh, well, go ahead. Well, lastly, I was going to say, you have a note in here about uh, um, our Patreon yeah, and uh, supporting our podcast. Totally. We very much appreciate everybody for listening to us. Thank you all. Everybody who's in our Patreon and in our Discord, you guys are a great flesh and blood family. Um, uh, so thanks for all your support, all your interactions. We love it. Um, in addition, you know, the world is run by algorithms. So it really helps us out if you review, like, subscribe, any button that pops up or you see just like takes one second and, um, yep. you know, helps us out. Totally. Yeah. You can, you know, support us with your money uh, through the Patreon. That's like one of the best ways to, uh, you know, help us out and keep us going with. Uh, our content and that sort of thing if you can afford it if not totally cool um, but you get like some cool stuff you get access to the discord you get stickers uh play mat if you subscribe at the highest tier exclusive you know. social hours you know the like <laughs> yeah totally there's a lot of really there's like a lot of cool stuff for sure on top of just like um getting to feel good for supporting you know two of your your favorite podcasts because we don't like sure we have an affiliate link with fab foundry which is another great way to support us um but really all all and you know the little bit of kickback we get comes from just our patreon 
you know? So uh, that's like the best way to make sure the money gets straight to us. Um, and like Isaac said, other than that uh, review, like we have a lot of people on iTunes listening to us. So rate and review it there. That really helps us out and reaches a bigger audience. And telling a friend is really, really helpful. You're at Armory, just be like, check these guys out, blah, blah, blah. They're pretty cool, you know? So, uh, I mean, you you know, sell it better than I did, but you know how to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's also little perks. Like, you know, if you are in our Patreon, we, uh, we have social hours sometimes. We're going to get back into, like, you know, commoner webcam tournaments, that kind of stuff, every once in a while. We just, uh, you know, produced a, a very beautiful custom play mat that we, you know, sold to our lower tier Patreons at cost. It was like 13 bucks and our upper tier got it for free. Um, you know, we try to, uh, like continually give back and, uh, you know, yep. Return the support. Yeah, totally. Cause it means a lot to us, you know, like, um, it's incredible that any of you decide to just give us your hard earned cash, you know? Um, and that's just from the bottom of our hearts. We can't thank you enough. So, Appreciate you all. Shoutouts. Yep. You got any shoutouts? I do. The whole Northern California crew. Like, so for me personally, the last time I went to an event was in, I think, March. And it was like last minute. All my whole ProQuest season has been very low, <laughs> low tech, you know, <laughs> low preparedness, last minute stuff. Um, but getting to go back to the Northern California scene. And just see all the homies that, you know, we all started in playing events in person during the Monarch meta. Getting to see them is just great. It feels good and is comfortable. And it's just such a cool crew of of people. And uh, they're hilarious. Like on Saturday after our first ProQuest, like getting to have uh, dinner with the homies at a nice Thai place was just like so much fun. Getting to make new friends forge deeper bonds with already existing friends and laugh and talk the game and and you know and we appreciate how much you guys have uh, welcomed us into your community because we are very much outsiders or our extended northern california you know and it's so funny they're like what's your local scene like up there and it's like it's us and six other people you know (laughs) so if you are local listening to this and you don't play in person freaking get on that please so we can have like a bigger bigger pool of players Um, definitely so shout out to them yeah great crew i have a specific person to shout out everybody's great but um i played shin for the second time who is a dory specialist every time i go he tops eight top eights with dory and uh he's great he's two and oh against me i kind of bring these like spiky decks like last time i was prism hunting this time I was playing Yuki's Prism li- or uh, Yuki's Lexi list, um, and I have these kind of fragile like decks. And <laughs> anyway, I sit down across from him. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna play it tight this time. I know what Dory does, right? <laughs> and then I draw two Art of Wars, a non-attack, and an amulet. <laughs> and then he plays a new card I am unfamiliar with. Gets three counters on Dawn Blade, turn zero. You know, and then the game proceeds from there. <laughs> I was like, oh no, it's happening again. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, proceeded to uh, beat me yet again. So great job. As Flesh and Bud should be. I was unprepared for Dory. 
did not know that matchup had maybe too cute of a deck or you know whatever and he just uh you know beat me smoked you yep, yeah yeah <laughs> totally awesome <laughs> quick tournament update from me uh i scrubbed out of both tournaments i punted so hard in my winning in on sunday that uh it took me until the morning to recover but then isaac like reminded me what happened and i w- went back into ptsd so that's basically how my weekend went but i had a ton of fun regardless of my results i definitely did want to do better than i did but that was a pipe dream because i was unprepared for everything and making decks the morning of you know yeah had had no idea what was going on can't do that anymore yeah players are really good yeah yeah oh yeah so i i guess i took pretty much yuki's list to I lost in the semifinals of day one to Oliver on Prism. Very good Prism player. Has a lot of reps. Um, tough matchup for me. And I did not practice that matchup much. He, <laughs> you know, will probably handily win most of those. <laughs> totally. Um, and then day two, I wasn't so much results hunting, I guess. I switched to Kano. Um, just had to scratch that itch and uh, went two and three, though. I was, you know, a... Uh, an unworthy wizard for now. <laughs> What's crazy, another story from this weekend. I know we're off topic here, but it was what was crazy is I played Starvo round two, I think, on Sunday, and I got uh, turn one, Crippling Crush, Starvo activation, Crippling Crush, turn two, Starvo activation, Crippling Crush, turn three, Starvo activation, Crippling Crush, turn four, uh, Oakenold fused, and then that was game. <laughs> <laughs> but uh and i wasn't even upset you know it's just you know that is a possibility and uh you know that's just how it goes and that's how like the meta kind of can be and it's just wild to not be upset by that insane amount of variance yeah i mean you know it's how games go sometimes you know what i mean it's just crazy so yeah i had fun in glad every every matchup except prism versus kano that's just like pretty uninteractive and kind of miserable but the rest of them are were just a blast whether i won or lost so thank you everyone all right on to the main topic that's me diving into our topic Pretty good sound effect. There you go, Colin. Transition. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're going to start first with card evaluations. Okay, so this is a crucial part of drafting is knowing what types of roles and how cards are going to function with different heroes. So... I'll go first and I'll talk about uh, one of the new cards from Uprising that ha- that's been spoiled for a while and kind of how I would evaluate that card. So the card, um, I'm going to use that as an example here to evaluate, is Cold Snap. So it's an ice action and it's the blue. So it's going to pitch for three. It costs one, defends for two. And it has text that reads, target hero may pay one resource. If they don't, 
freeze a card in their arsenal or an ally they control until the start of their next turn. And a frozen object can't be played or activated. And then if Cold Snap is played from Arsenal, you get a draw card. So in Uprising, we're looking at this card in Icelander. So um, it does quite a lot of things for her. So it's a ice blue card that she can play from Arsenal at instant speed on her opponent's turn. So it gives them a Frostbite and it's going to replace itself and give her or give her another card in hand and gives your opponent um, something they have to think about on their turn on top of the frostbite. Um, well, let me interject here also. Another um, uh, use of this card, right, is you can use it on your turn. Correct, yeah. So then you don't uh, give them a frostbite, but the card you pitch to pay for it, you can use those additional resources to play something else on your turn. Correct. Yeah. Because um, and it would still strip a card from them right. and still freeze their arsenal. Right. Or their potentially. Or their dragon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's like a different use case, right? Like still like strips a card mm-hmm. if it's your turn and freeze their arsenal, but doesn't frostbite, doesn't surprise them, you know. Right. But it has go again, so you can play this, replace itself, then maybe play some uh, more arcane damagey stuff, right? So it's a really flexible card in this scenario. It works both out of arsenal um, to slow your opponent down, or it works out of arsenal on your turn as an additional uh, piece of your attack. So for me, this is a really good card because of how flexible it is within that hero. And so I would be happy uh, to make this like potentially one of my like early kind of picks where I start hedging into like one class, right? Yeah, I like this card in blue. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about a little bit um, like ways to evaluate cards or this card, right? As we consider this card, um, you can look at cards for their individual power, like how they stand alone, right? Just like playing them on their own. You can also look at them in terms of their role or function in your deck or your archetype, right? So this card is a blue ice card, right? So for Eastlander, she can uh, play it on their turn because specifically because it's blue. Fuses. Um, it, it also right. fuses. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So it uh, if you know if your goal is you know some degree of disruption which it most likely will be um this fills that role for sure it is a blue and her theme is blue cards we don't know what her weapon is yet but if for example you're playing with kraken you know it applies there as well right um you can also look at the ability to block with this card However, in this case, this is an ide- ideally a card you want to fuse and save. Right. But it does only block for two, right? Right. Yeah. In uh, another example I have here is uh, if we look at Tales of Aria and we look at something like Earth Lore Surge Yellow, right? So really powerful card. Yeah, at a yellow, at face value, right, it is... Uh, a yellow so it pitches for two 
cost two if we don't know what this does. So Earth Lore Surge, yellow, pitches for two, cost two is a Earth non-attack action, so it defends for two, and it reads the next attack action card you play this turn gains plus four, go again. So really powerful effect, right? So it's an Earth card, so you can fuse with it. It gives an attack, any attack, whether it's uh, a elemental, a Earth, ice, um, you know, generic, whatever. It gives it plus four, so super, super good. Also being a fuse card, it's uh, a very friendly card to Arsenal as it is easily played out. Yeah, exactly. Um, because it has go again and is a non-attack and that sort of thing. So when we think about this card in terms of then the heroes, the two heroes that can play it are Old Him and Briar. So if we think about this in Old Him, it costs two in any of Old Him's attack actions at minimum will also cost two, meaning you will need four resources to play this and another attack, right? So you'll need to pitch at least two cards. You'll need to play Earth Lore Surge and then an attack. So you need to have four cards just to get this ability off. So kind of a steep curve to get plus four, especially in a format where the... Um, Gameplay is very fast, and you might not be able to hold on to all four cards. It also has kind of a downside of it not being a blue. So now you can't use it for Old Hymn's uh, defense reaction ability. It is a yellow, and you could argue that you can use it and another yellow ice card to do both at the same time or something like that, or a red ice card. But that's like a pretty uh, rare scenario where you want to pitch two cards to do both reactions at the same time. Um, and then it doesn't block for three. So kind of generally in an Oldheim deck, it like isn't the best value for a pick, right? Because it has all of those potential downsides, even though it's a fuse, it does pitch for more resources, and it gives plus four, which is bananas, right? But the downsides in Oldheim for a pick are like I think outweigh those upsides. Do you have any input on that, Isaac? Um, no. We, you want to go through the uh, the flip side? Yeah, exactly. Right. So then this card looks I think better in a Briar deck. So it's a non-attack action which she inherently wants, um, and most of her cards that she can play cost one. So with Earth Lore Surge being a cost of two and some of her cards being costed one or zero, it's really easy to pitch one card, a blue, and then play this in an attack. And then you get that plus four. It's also um, a uh, Earth card, right? So it fuses for her. And since she has the embodiments of Earth, that two block is like not... The worst thing because it actually can block for three and then it gets the upsides of it being able to pitch so in briar yellows are just fine as pitch cards because you might uh play a a uh, non-attack action like electrify that costs one have uh something else that's free and that could have go again into rosetta and that's only two resources so earth lore surge also works as a pitch card. Um, 
So for me, this is way more serviceable in a Briar deck and has a much better upside. So when I evaluate this card in a pack, if I'm in Oldham, I'm going to probably look for something else. But if I'm Briar, I would really consider Yellow Earthlore Surge for all of those upsides and synergies. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. It also uh, is half of an embodiment of Lightning token. Yeah. Um, yeah, This is so this is a really good example of understanding the value of a card on its own. Right, like Yellow Earthlord Surge is a premium card. Yeah. It's very powerful. It's more powerful than most of the cards in the set. Yeah. However, when you consider it, um, like you said, with the, you know, when considering the archetype you're trying to build and the hero you're trying to play, its value goes way up or way down. Correct. For sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I completely agree. In Old Him, this is a card that you can get very stuck in your arsenal, for example. You know, you work with what you got. So there are worlds where you keep your life total really high and then you play this into a fused glacial or something and that's the only win condition you manage, right? It's not a terrible card, but agreed, it's not very good. Yeah. If it was blue, it'd be excellent. <laughs> yeah, totally. It'd be well but, worth it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is like, yeah, I think that is a great example, right? Like card pretty good on its own, really good, not sure. But then when Wade considering your deck, like really, really varies. Yeah, exactly. And so like, you know, this is an exercise um, me and Isaac are starting for this next set of uprising. Um, and something you can do with your friends or alone, right, is you can go through every card in the set and give them like little notes or ratings on how good they are, right? Like... Uh, if I were to give Earthlore Surge a uh, rating of one to three stars, right? In yellow, right? Earthlore Surge for Old Him is, you know, one star. In Briar, I probably give it two stars. The two cost probably keeps it away from that top tier, you know? So you could do that for every th single card in the set. And I think that will just help the getting the practice of okay how am i going to evaluate this thinking about the card critically breaking it down into its little pieces in all of its use cases because that's one of the beautiful parts about flesh and blood is every card pitches defends and either has an ability text or is an attacking card right so yeah so it has all of that stuff and a, um, a last note for me on this card and this maybe like branches out into a lot of different topics we're going to discuss but um there's also the consideration, you know, there's like a lot of cards like this, right? Which are maybe not part of the core concept of your deck, but um, still function adequately in it, right? So like, um, you know, you, I would still put a red scar for a scar into my Bravo draft deck because it's that good. Right. However, you also need to consider, of course, the deck you're drafting. Once you have too many red scar for a scars or these other cards that are powerful but are outside of what your deck is trying to do then they become less appealing right so if i have a very tight bravo list with several win conditions and plenty of blues and it's a very good deck and then i have two red scar for a scars in it i think that adds value but you don't want to keep you know adding these yellow earth floor surges or these kind of like outlier power cards um, you know, once it starts, uh, 
like maybe tilting your ratios or bringing down your consistency. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. Yeah. Um, Because it's fine to have like a bit of trickery up your sleeve, but you can't be all tricks or else nothing is a trick. Right? Yep. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the old, uh, I tell my like uh, some of my like strength um, clients this is like if every single training session is important then none of the training sessions are important you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so uh maybe that's not applicable but is maybe applicable to you on a personal level um shall we move on to identifying bomb cards now that we've learned how to evaluate cards um let me see. Sorry, I'm just uh, refreshing myself on my. Um... So, dang, how do I um, how do I pitch this here? I guess so. When you evaluate cards, I would, I would say you can start with the base of like how good is this card standing on its own, right? Like Red Autumn's Touch. Very good, right? Blocks for three. Swings for a break point. Two cards is a very, it's a very strong attack. Um, it fuses. It um, it fills a lot of roles, right? So even if you're in Lightning Briar, this deck or this card might merit inclusion anyway, just because of its strength, right? But after you start with that baseline, you really have to then move on to evaluating the cards, you know, based on the functionality in your deck. Right. So like an example that I have is Honing Hood. Right. Mm-hmm. So for me at face value, you know, I understand what this card does and all of the applications. Right. It seems pretty good, but, it, you know, it seems OK. Right. Pretty good for the game, you know, but not not going to win you the game. Right. But then after playing with this card a lot in limited, you know, you start to you start to understand that. Wait a minute. So this card fixes my worst hand or worst draw every single game yep right so when i have a kind of clunky hand i can uh, cycle things around if i have too many arrows and don't have to block with them i can arsenal an arrow and it fixes that for me right so then when you start looking at a game that might only last four or five turns and you literally you know, up the power of one of those turns by 50% or whatever it is right? and start looking at it this way, then this card becomes really, really good. So, um, yeah, in your card evaluation, I would just argue, you know, uh, none of these cards have, um, their standalone value does not mean very much compared to their, uh, performance in their role. Right. Their applicability when playing. I'm not sure how to really uh, eloquently describe that better. Do you you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that will, that point comes up a lot more when we start talking about how to draft a deck, Mm -hmm. not just uh, 30 really powerful cards. Because, you know, um, synergy and combos and that sort of thing are an important part of flesh and blood. And, um, you know, equipment is a little bit trickier, uh, but like typically having the equipment and figuring out how to utilize it is always better than like not having it. 
mm-hmm. you know, as well. Definitely. But but yeah, the the role honing hood plays, the upside of that is like really good when you break it, when you evaluate it in that circumstance. Right. Right. Um, and if you were to think about like, well, it doesn't deal any more damage or it doesn't give me like the advantage of having an extra card or it doesn't block. So what it's like, what are you really doing for me? You know, but when you really stop to think about and evaluate that card in what its potential ability is, then it's like, okay, well, this is actually like pretty good because as soon as you lose tempo in a, uh, limited Aria game, you die. Instantly, <laughs> you're at 10 health, you lost tempo, you're dead. No yep. way you're coming back. Yep. <laughs> so if you can avoid so that by using Honing Hood, it's it's huge. Yeah. Really, really huge. Um, so I have a little foreshadowing hot tip, and then we'll move into the next. You got it. The next topic. So my little, my little tidbit here is when evaluating cards, I guess this is more of a live tip, right? But as cards move through your hand as you pass them in draft um it's important to also know or have evaluated cards based on um how they will perform against you right so if i need to construct my deck and i can't afford to hate draft this red turn timber or this yellow sigil of suffering i still need to note and remember how many of those are in circulation or how many do i see how many players at the table are those or you know are how many players at the table are diluting these powerful cards that I see go by. And then that will kind of play into some of your decisions later on when you sit down across from your opponents. Wonderful. That's all. Bomb cards. Ooh. Okay. So, um, everybody wants to just like have this sick bomb card and win the game. Right, um, I mean, yeah, yeah. That that's like the way. That's how we want to do it, you know. Um, but sometimes in Flesh and Blood, because cards do so many things and the game is so dynamic, it can be sometimes hard to evaluate uh, bomb cards in certain sets until you kind of get your hands on it and play it a little bit. But I think it's getting easier for me and Isaac because we've now played like so much limited and we've been in the game for a while. So I think we have like kind of a better grasp on that um and another thing about that is rarity of a card does not equal its power level right so yes some of the cards we're going to talk about in this segment are majestics and are extremely powerful but not all majestics are as such right right um yeah, Remembrance, Toma Findall, you know, with no Mage Master boots. Right. You know, these are Majestics, but might not even be worth picking, depending on... Um, yeah, I mean, you know. uh, Rusted Relic is a super. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. And is not a bomb whatsoever. <laughs> you know? So, um, those are some easy examples of, like, higher rarity cards that blow, you know? So... Uh, I'll, I'll just get into it. Okay. So, well, also, I'm going to preface by good. saying not many cards in this game are bomb cards, and that makes it a good game. Yeah. Most Majestics are not bombs. Right. Some are powerful and limited, some are less so. But, you know, 
it's a good thing that not a lot of cards break the game or make you win yeah a lot easier yeah and like we talked about i think in part one just because you open a majestic or a rare or whatever in that class unless it is really the bomb card of the set you don't need to be beholden to that hero so keep that in mind so the most bomby card i can think of is v of the vanguard right and it's it's crazy because it's a rare and that means it is really likely to come up in your draft and what makes it so good is uh i um uh, what's the word not collection but it's a collection of all these little traits that add up into it being um, really really powerful so uh, it's like a card that is relatively easy to just create a 20 damage turn yeah in of itself it's like a standalone 20 damage win turn. condition yeah yeah so one uh v of the vanguard has a really low cost so it only costs one um and then it has a huge it has a very big synergy with the hero that it's for so it v of the vanguard costs one it says charge you may charge up to any number of light cards from your hand into your soul if you do attacks on the combat chain get plus x where x is the number of cards you've put into your soul so if you put two cards into your soul that are light cards v of the vanguard will then get plus two so it'll come in it'll be a one for five and then everything else on the combat chain will also get plus two which then with bolton's ability his attack reaction you get a banish cards out of soul to then give cards that have higher attack power than their base go again so already, basically, V of the Vanguard reads, uh, pay one, charge a card, give it plus one, and then everything else that you play this turn, you can give go again if you have enough cards in soul, right? Um, so another reason it's really balmy is because it has a damage, damage amplification ability that is persistent throughout the combat chain. So if for some reason, let's say you have a, um, you know, we got our our four card hand and we don't even have an arsenal, right? You got a blue and two uh, light cards with V. So you pitch the blue, play V, charge those two light cards. V comes in for five, you give it go again. Now you have a hatchet that comes in for four you give that go again there's nine damage then you have uh your last hatchet comes in for five right so you've dealt 14 damage off of just a four card hand in a blue super easy now if you had an arsenal card that is uh, a zero cost attack which there are a ton of those in common now you can add uh five more damage to that and then boom there's your like 19 damage turn like no problem right you didn't even have to like arsenal v and uh wait around basically you need one more card and soul to make that happen um so another part so uh just to recap here 
What makes it really good is that it's really easy to use. It has a lot of synergy with the hero. And then it also makes it really hard for your opponent to interact with it, right? So there's no way your opponent can like really shut it down in the in that limited format. Uh, they just basically have to either take the damage or block it out, right? So that's what makes it really, really good. So you're either going to just deal them a buttload of damage and then uh, be able to strip cards on the next turn or they're at a life threshold in which they have to block and strip cards and you can have like a ton of tempo, right? So in those two scenarios, you can really win the game. Assuming that you're not at like, you know, one health and you have to block their turn with your V. In that case, then it blocks for three, which is still pretty good. Did all of that make sense to you, Isaac, in that example? Was I clear and concise? Have you learned? Yes, 100%. <laughs> Woo! Now, so it's important to understand, right? So this is a really powerful turn, and it doesn't necessarily win you the game. But if you chip some damage first, you can go over the top and kill them. Or you can deal so much damage they get so low on life that you can just pressure and kill them. Right. So, it, you know, these cards aren't just like a magic, you know, ticket to get the W, but they're as close as you're going to get. Yeah, if you can deal 14 damage off of that card, then like just with your hatchets, not even attack actions, right? Um, there, You only have 20 health, so they would only have 6 health in reserve if they did not block, which is pretty huge if you can mm -hmm. just do that turn 1, you know? Return yeah, two. Definitely. So that's a reason it's a bomb card. I have more examples. Would you like me to continue or do you want to interject? Um, no, not at all. <laughs> what uh, what's your other uh, example here? Okay, so my other example uh from Tales of Aria is awakening. So it fits all of the criteria, right? Even though this card is now suspended or is it banned? I think in classic construction. I think it's banned. Okay. It's well, a pretty absurd card. It's pretty absurd, <laughs> but it's really bomb. So this is a Majestic. Um, so this comes up way less, but you can get it early in a draft. It is worth drafting your deck around. So Awakening costs two, and then you're going to make Seismic Surges, and it's an instant. Make Seismic Surges uh, equal to the number of like difference in health. Yeah, your health totals. differential. Yeah. Yeah. And it tutors a card from your deck. So you, and because it's an instant, you can play it on your opponent's turn, go get a really powerful card, and then your seismic surges break, and then you can play that card for basically free. Yeah, and you can also, I mean, you know what you're going to target and what they're doing, so you can kind of block or take damage to just get to the right, right to the right differential, right? So you want to go down six life exactly. Right. You know? And then you play Awakening on their turn, fetch Glacial, play, glacial play it on for your free. turn. Yeah, play Red Glacial for 10. And you might even have a Fuse card too, you know, because you, you're taking this damage swing. So it fits all of the criteria, right? It um, is a easy card to play because it is low-costed. Um, it has... Uh, an ability that your opponent cannot really interact with. It's actually very punishing for your opponent to like attack you and go lower. Um, and with cards like Glacial Footsteps that you can then play for free, you can save an ice card relatively easily to give it dominate and kind of win the game on the spot, right? Red Glacial comes in for 10. 
dominate. And when you only have 20 health, that's half of your health total. That's just going to be deleted in the game, right? Um, so, and just like V, it might not like win you the game, but it's going to steal you a ton of tempo and get you really close to your win condition. It could win you the game because you could dominate Glacial Footsteps. But um, so that would be another example of a bomb card, right? Is that it doesn't really fit the criteria of working with your hero's ability in a really synergistic way, but it fits with the cards you have in your hero's deck really well. Easy to play. Your opponent can't interact with it. And uh, yeah, is just really good. Definitely. I have a couple examples I uh, wrote down here. Sure. Um, I listed Induction Chamber. I know they're having problems with that at really big events in the Arcane Rising meta. Um, you know, just really, really powerful. Enables you to, you know, kind of fatigue or tempo your opponent with uh, basically too strong of a weapon when paired with Dash's ability. Um, I also put down Winter's Whale uh, because that card is absurdly punishing. Um, just a straight upgrade. It's it's pretty nuts and uh, kind of in a set where you don't have a lot of you don't have a lot of armor or like free defense reactions to like kind of combat that or buy yourself a turn. Yeah, um, it's like really oppressive. Again, you could uh, a fatigue old him can beat a Winter's Whale deck or, you know, it's right. It's not a uh, not unbeatable. Um, and the last one I put down here is I've never pulled this, but I would imagine Blazing Aether is a pretty bomby card. Or maybe Lessons in Lava. Um, but just because Blaze, you know, and if you hit it off the top or you Kano on your turn and then use your action point to play Blazing or you lead the charge Voltic then Blazing, um, it just, in my mind, is probably really powerful in a, in a game where there's not much Arcane Barrier. Um, just due to the amplification effect. Um, now there's there's like a number of cards also that are like extremely powerful and limited, but are like I don't know maybe less of a win condition or maybe by your parameters a little bit. Um, you know, it's not a bomb because it doesn't just like give you a huge leg up in the game. You know, and some of these cards like Tear Asunder, right? Um, Rites of Lightning, my favorite draft card. Soul Reaping, I think, is insane. Uh, even like Barraging Beatdown Red. Right, is really really powerful, but it's kind of just a, like a piece. These really powerful cards in your deck, but on their own are not like this huge, kind of like overpowered combo. Um, where would you put Oakenold here? Yeah, I, Oakenold I th would say is definitely a bomb card because of all of the other things we've talked about. Right, it's really easy to play. It's a three for seven. Um, so you just need two cards to just do seven damage, uh, which can be, which is really good in Tales of Aria, uh, limited. And then you, you have just ice and earth cards in your deck already. So fusing it is like not too challenging, right? You just, you can park it in arsenal and it comes up pretty easy that you have an ice and an earth card in there and you can get that dominate tempo stealing effect and now you have nine dominate and they lose two cards um so yeah, yeah i it, it's definitely a bomb because it's like easy to play it sounds like it's not but in practice it is like pretty easy 
Yeah, and in my mind, I mean, it's it's a huge card because of the three for seven aspect. Like the yeah. downside is like non-existent. Right? Yeah, it, it blocks, blocks for, for three, three, or you can just play it as three for seven. Yeah, which is pretty insane. You know, if it costed like five <laughs> and blocked for two, you know, then you like. I mean, you probably still include it in your deck because of the upside, but it just gets like a lot more of a weighing what you need kind of situation here. Yeah. On kind of a another, well, the same note. So I've been looking at like the spoilers for Uprising and I'm starting to inch my way into thinking that maybe Ice Eternal, which is the uh, Icelander specialization, one of them might be kind of bomby in this set as well. So it's, a blue that blocks for three. It's an elemental wizard action. So it doesn't give a frostbite really, but um, it, <laughs> yet, yet <laughs> it has ice fusion. And so it reads, uh, well, it has an XX ability. So it says create X frostbite tokens under hero's control. Then if ice eternal was fused, deal arcane damage to that hero equal to the number of frostbite frostbites they control right so x is equal to the amount of resources you pay so with three blues you can pump this bad boy up to four so you can deal four um frostbite tokens and deal four arcane damage which i don't see how anybody can then like continue their turn after that especially when the other two heroes have a lot of red cards so it feels very bomby and tempo steely to me right you like literally freeze them in their tracks and deal four damage to them so it could really slow them down and give you the tempo back you need in that game or just win you the game because it's like four damage but that's uh four damage at instant speed but with maybe the uh what are they called ash wings out there with arcane barrier it might not um be super viable so we'll have to see what the arcane prevention stuff is but yeah anyway i could be totally wrong but that card just seems really strong to me in this limited format and one little note about bombs is that they still have to fit your deck right yeah so if you open a v uh pack two or pack three especially and you're not in bolton no reason you can't to pivot, pivot yeah. right you probably hate draft it because you don't want to see it yeah but you can't pivot. Um, I learned this lesson when I picked an induction chamber pack two um, when I was not in dash and my deck was too weak right? Um, to uh, be like overly powerful. So despite the power level of these cards and the fact that you should probably hate draft them away from whoever is in that role, um, you know, you have to see it pack one or be lucky enough to be in the role to pick it. Right. Um, you know, there are limits to, you know, like I said, if you, you know, if you open something pack two and you're, if you pivot, you're just going to have this like kind of garbagey deck with three cracked bobbles. You know, this card may not win the day. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Even though it is really good. I mean, it's uh, a way for you to deal consistent four damage every single turn. Right. And that's what Winter's Whale does. That's even if you don't have ice cards, Winter's Whale is like a strict upgrade from Titan's Fist because it doesn't have the like restriction of sometimes only dealing three damage it just deals four no matter what and has an upside of a hit effect yeah. a lot of the majestic weapons are like that right dread scythe and monarch busted 
there's no arcane barrier. It comes in every time with a free arcane for three resources. You can shackle it. You can play seeds into shackle bounding and then play your blue. Like, that's crazy. It's a crazy turn. That weapon's nuts. <laughs> you know? So yeah. um, that's it. That's what I got on bomb cards. Sounds great. Thank you. What's our next topic? Our next topic, I'm going to have to come up with a sound effect for this, is we're going to be talking about drafting decks slash ar- archetypes, not just cards. Right. Hmm. <laughs> this kind of ties into some of the things I was talking about, about a card evaluation earlier. Right. Um, okay, so... This is not really like a new concept within drafting and is something we've talked about in other episodes and and we talk about it on part one. Um, but I think this is something that's overlooked because you get kind of, um, oh, what's the word, drawn into the power of cards, thinking that also equates to the power of your deck. But in reality... It is the synergy of the cards and their relative power level that helps your deck become more powerful, right? You can't just pick all red cards that cost three and deal seven and then not pick any blues or, you know, what what have you, you know? Actually, maybe you could if they all blocked for three because then you could just like block for six, attack for seven, block for six attack for seven that's i mean we have that archetype in old time right now yeah but it's Um, i mean i completely agree and it's like it's pretty hard even if you're aware of this kind of phenomenon or habit it's uh it it does become very difficult to not kind of fall into this pattern right like so if i'm drafting briar you know and i have like a lightning surge and then you know i get a lightning press and then but then some other cards come around and i'm like oh i'm gonna pick this red stir the wildwood you know oh and this bramble sparks really good you know and you these are all really really powerful cards and i'm like well i have enough earth cards and i or i have enough lightning cards and i can draft enough earth cards in the future here to like make these work or you know and it doesn't mean you can't mix it up a bit or like have run all the powerful cards but you know then you gotta weigh the consistency of your hands right so then if i draw these cards that you know, how good are these cards if I can't fuse them? Or right. how good are these cards if I can't make an embodiment of lightning token? Or, you know, like, what's the cost curve I'm looking at here when I have, like, you know, very few resource cards and now I'm leaning into a whole bunch of, like, two-cost pumps and two-cost, you know, attacks or whatever. Right. So, you know, it, it it's tough, right? Like, the last time I drafted Kano, I... I started forgoing like red voltic bolts or whatever to try to up my blue count. Um, but I did, but I did it a little bit too late because I was like, all right, I need more blues mostly. But then I heat drafted some arcane barrier. And then I like got, you know, I, I might've had like 12 or 13 blues, but a couple would brick off the top, you know? And it was like, it was a little bit too few because I was like a little bit unaware, maybe a little bit too greedy. Right. I was like, oh, I, I can run one more of these red, <laughs> yeah. these red cards, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to stay incredibly disciplined, right. I guess. Yeah. When you're, you're like, oh, but so what's the upside of throwing this red stir the wildwood in there, you know? Right. Yeah. And 
I, I Tales of Varia is a great lesson in drafting decks, not power cards, um, because not all of the elemental cards synergize with the heroes that can run those elements. So I think Lexi is a great example of this. So Lightning Surge is a lightning card that gets go again when you play it from Arsenal. But Lexi's ability allows you to flip up a card in Arsenal. And if it's lightning, gives an attack go again. So in a scenario where you have uh, multiple non-go again attacks that aren't arrows in your hand, lightning surge is great. But then the synergy of your deck is really low. So then you have a lot of Heaven's Claws that you're playing from hand that have no hit effect and are just raw damage and cost one, right? For the flip-up effect of Lightning Surge, if there were if there were any synergy. The best synergy in Lexi is to have a Lightning card like Electrify or Heaven's Claw that gives... Heaven's Claw will give itself go again, which is really nice. Or Electrify is a non-attack action that's Lightning that you can then play out and now one of your arrows you can load will have go again. So that's like better synergy even though lightning surge let's say red is a zero for four it has go again and it fuses the synergy with lexi is a little bit lower than it is in briar so then if you have that in briar and you play um your non-attack action and then play that free uh go again attack action from your arsenal to get go again now you can get to rosetta and get that free arcane damage right so the synergy with a briar deck uh red lightning surge or any of the lightning surges really is a little bit higher than it can be in lexi right mm-hmm. so that's when we're talking about drafting decks and not just cards right am i going to have the synergy in my lexi deck for this lightning surge or should I pick up this Heaven's Claw instead or this Electrify that are maybe at like yellows or blues for the off chance that they have to fill that other specific role, right? Yeah, I hear you. Um, I just, I still think Red Lightning Surge is really good in Lexi, but point taken that, um, you know, the added benefit of getting to Rosetta makes it have more value um, in Briar for sure. And you can look at, there's a lot of powerful cards like this, like, um, uh, Red Weave Ice, for example, right? I mean, this is a good card in Old Him, right? You can arsenal it and you can pump an attack because it's free. It's an ice card, so you could have fused with it prior before you arsenaled it. You know, still has a lot of value. But this is, I would say, pumps in Lexi are your number one priority. I mean, you could argue Red Arrows maybe, but pumps have a lot of value. Yeah. However, depending on your Old Him archetype, Red Weave Ice might be a bit lower on your priority list. You know, if you're going for kind of a fatigue strategy, you know, Red Weave Ice isn't going to do anything for you, right? (laughs) It might not even make the cut. (laughs) If you're going to try to tempo them or you're more on an aggressive three for seven ice strategy, it might get a bit better, right? It can be a win condition because it gets dominate if the attack's fused. But, you know, these are, you know, it goes from being a good card or an okay card or, you know, if you're deep control, not a great card at all. Yeah. To uh, being a very, very powerful card, you know, in in a Lexi build. Right. Yeah. So, you know, 
Uh, and that goes back to also like our uh, car devaluation. Like these two things uh, have a lot of interplay. These two topics, drafting decks rather than drafting uh, cards and identifying those cards. Those two have a lot, a lot of interplay. Um, uh, another example I have is if you're in a certain archetype of Bravo from Welcome to Wraith, um, a lot of his hero ability and Anothos is synergized around cards costing three. But there are also a lot of uh, cards that uh, have a cost of two that are guardian traded, like the guardian auras um, that give your attack, that like buff your attacks or, or that sort of thing. And those are um, enticing to get those big attacks really huge. And you're already pitching uh, perhaps four resources anyway. So why not just tack on, uh, you know, uh, two more resources to make something else, right? Um, but there's a little bit less of a synergy there in a certain archetype where you're trying to, um, you know, swing a Nothos for six a lot. And um, the you just might not be set up for um, those auras because they don't have go again, right? Or they proc on the next turn. Is they do when, have go again. Well, but some they of them, don't proc. Yeah, yeah, they proc on like the next yeah. turn and that sort of thing. Um so if your if your Bravo list is is able to utilize them, that's great. But um, if it's not, and you're trying to swing a Nothos a lot, and then like play defense reactions and play a bit of more of a fatigue or or mid rangey game, um, then they're maybe not the best example or not the best card for your deck, although still really powerful. Yeah. So I would. I would uh, let me just jump in and clarify here yeah. that um, this is a really good example of understanding, you know, the function of these card in your deck, right? So, like Taylor said, if you have too many two cost cards, then it is difficult to turn a Nothos on, right? right. Um, on the flip side, these auras fill a really valuable role of if you can pitch to play one and then pitch again to swing a Nothos, you can get it to six, right? Yep. But in draft, you have no tectonic plating. So just swinging an Othos on its own will always be for four. And I've found that these auras with go again are a pretty critical way of getting an Othos to six and setting up your next turn. So in that way, they, they do fill a really valuable role in that playing them buffs your next turn and buffs your weapon by two, essentially. Right. right? However, if you have too many of them in your deck then you might be playing one, but then you can just pitch two more auras and you can't trigger a Nothos, right? right? Yeah. So having maybe mostly three costed blues, but then a healthy, um, but not too many, you know, ratio of these auras will kind of get you your best results, right? right? Having none, a Nothos is always for four. Having too many, you're just kind of clunking out and it's not worth the damage trade or whatever. Right, you know? yeah. Um, other things in the Bravo deck too are like things to consider like um, so blues are are of utmost importance right and so when you're thinking about the backbone of your Bravo deck just picking any old blues maybe isn't uh, you know the best it's fine but you could take it one step further so for example if you look at Crush Confidence or 
blue or debilitate both in blue, right? On second cycle, it's you get um, uh, one more. So okay, hold on. Excuse me. So blue debilitate costs four, right? So you need to use Bravo's ability that costs two. So you're gonna pitch two blues anyway, and. I th I'm pretty sure, I don't have it pulled up, but blue debilitate does one more point of damage at blue than crush confidence does. And so that one extra point of damage with Bravo's ability to dominate might be a, might be worth it over its ease in which to cast it, right? With, uh, that you get with crush confidence because that comes in for three. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So if you choose a four-costed blue attack on second cycle, you might be able to edge out that dominated attack to win you the game because it does one more point of damage. Yep. That makes sense? It does. Cool. Sorry I stumbled there, but <laughs> I don't play Guardian too much, so I had to really remember what those cards did. It's so good. It's all good. We're we're unpacking, uh, you know, a lot here and i would just i would synthesize it down into it's not you're not asking yourself how good is this card right you're asking this how good is this card in my game plan right 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 um and some cards are just so critical like if we talk about katsu you need zero cost blues right otherwise the deck like kind of just doesn't function or you're forgoing your weapons which is right. insane <laughs> right <laughs> and um you know like or in dorinthia right like at face value, you're like, oh, boom, I have all of these red attack reactions, you know, and it's like, I'm going to super hard punish my opponents for not having enough defense reactions or under blocking or if they try to hold some cards, right? Which is true, right? You'll like push a bit of damage. But, you know, you quickly realize these like attack reactions are kind of like a dime a dozen, right? And they have their role. But what you're really after is sources of go again for Dawnblade. Right. And there are only a few cards that do this, and this is really what makes your deck come. So, you know, while you're, you know, you think of Dory in terms of attack reacting your sword, punishing players. But then uh, once you've, like, played limited a bit, then you realize, like, oh, my, my threats are kind of empty and my damage trade ratio is too low yeah. for this. Yeah. So I actually need to... Uh, you know, get these other cards <clears throat> that, you know, you look at Driving Blade standalone, right? It's pretty good, kind of expensive. You can't play it and Dawn Blade and a one cost reaction, right? It's like right. a little clunky. But then once you start to weigh it in terms of its performance in our actual game scenario, the the value goes way up. Yeah. And, and so then the next layer of this, right, is you go, okay, so if I play Driving Blade and Dawn Blade, for one blue, you know, that's X damage with go again. So then I need either a free attack to follow it up with or a whole other two cards or potentially one to swing Dawnblade again or to use another attack. So then you go, well, what's e a little easier, right? A free cost attack. So then you just get uh, like wounding blow which is free so you just go driving blade into dawn blade into wounding blow for free yeah right they overblock they overblock yep. hard punish right um and wounding blow gets overlooked i think a lot because it doesn't have go again and it's just like the most baseline card but in this scenario if you get a bunch of driving blades you can just like hard punish your opponent with like a bunch of extra damage 
Right. And like, so Flock of the Feather Walkers is kind of a similar card, right? Like, I don't really like that card. But then when you consider what the Quicken Token does in Dory, yeah. its value goes up yeah, quite a lot. Yep, totally. So to, to kind of condense this into like a bite-sized chunk, right? You don't always need to be looking for the best card in draft. There should be times when you are picking the right card over what is considered the best card. So rather than picking the most powerful attacks, sometimes you need to pick resources, element cards, defense reactions, etc. for whatever archetype you're starting to build. This is one of the beautiful things I think about draft is you get a deck build on the spot. And as you like start to think about these things in this way and um, get the practice in it, it can be really, really rewarding where you're like, ooh, yeah, this you can get really into like, oh yeah, this blue resource curve, you know, so sick, yeah. you know, it has this upside on second cycle, you totally. know. Totally, like I got, I got seven non-attack actions in chain, man, I'm going <laughs> to blow these fools out, you <laughs> yeah. know, because you yeah. don't, you don't understand right. how good that is until you, uh, you play it. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so our next topic is. I have one more tip for this one. Oh, okay, great. I forgot to ask. I want to remind everyone to identify the win conditions of your deck. Oh, and this right. varies, um, you know, when you're, so when you're drafting your deck, not just individual cards, right? A crucial component is win conditions. And so in some sets, like maybe Aria, it's a bit more fluid. You're looking for synergy and combos and consistency. Or sometimes you're looking for uh, blocking until you can oak an old fuse, right? Um, but in other sets, it might be like a bit more, a bit more clear cut, right? Like, um, so, you know, if I'm drafting Monarch, I will, you know, I'll look at my deck afterwards or as I'm doing it and I'll see, you know, how many win conditions do I have, right? Like, so I have a pump and an overload. Okay. If I'm going into a slower matchup, I can pitch this or I can arsenal the pump until I see the overload. You know, I'm I'm a little bit short of win conditions. Maybe in Leviathan, I'm going to grab this Writhing Beast Hulk. Right. And then as I'm playing, I'm going to understand how many I have. And I'm going to know, can I afford to block with this card? How fast is this game? Can I afford to pitch it? Do I need to arsenal it and use it soon? You know, you'll... Uh, because I'm not very good at memorizing every card in my deck. But it is easy to look at your deck in the interactions and just make a note of like four different things. Right. So I'm looking for these cards. The, you know, these cards will win me the game. You know, this. And sometimes you'll, you'll be looking at your hand and you'll be like, is this worth the trade? What does this do? And then you'll, you know, remember about, and you'll be like, oh no, this is not one of my three power combos. Right. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to block and I'm going to swing my weapon and I'm going to, you know. Yeah. Um maintain my life total in the game state at a point where then I, I can then capitalize on my powerful cards later. Right. You know, and it, again, it varies a lot, right? Like Azalea might need to pitch stack a buff and an arrow so she can hit it for dominate. Whereas Bravo just has dominate on demand. Right. Right. So then you're kind of only looking for his, you know, his powerful red card. Right. And uh, it varies quite a lot for heroes, but it is a very important thing to understand. Um, you know, as you're picking cards totally so does this synergize block what role does it fill but also you know does this is this a win condition or is it part of one right um so we're going to move on to reading your seat but before we get there we're going to take a short commercial break and then we'll be right back have you ever been belittled by brutes perhaps you've been 
overwhelmed by non-stop ninja naughtiness. Tired of being whipped by wizards and warriors? Are you wrecked non-stop by rune blades? Then what you need is Teclo. At Teclo Industries, we provide the tech you need to survive the wilds both in and outside the city of Metrics. At its core, Teclo is all about speed and our products are legendary. We have the heart and the drive to keep you alive. Teclo Industries, building a better future yesterday. We hope you enjoyed that commercial break. Thanks again to everyone who submitted a commercial to our contest. We will be airing them uh, sporadically to, uh, you know, appreciate their effort and uh, give them a little, little spotlight. Hell yeah. All right. Reading your seat. So one of the more, uh, speaking of seats, my seat is very squeaky. Hopefully you can't hear it on the podcast. Uh this is one of the more important skills to help you like level up your draft game and uh, definitely takes a lot of practice. I think some of these other things we've talked about, like evaluating cards, identifying bomb cards, um, thinking about synergies, that sort of thing can all be done pre-draft. But reading your seat is a skill that takes a lot of drafts. So you got to get to skirmish. You got to get to the road to nationals. You got to get in there and friggin' draft. And keep this in mind as well. And you're like, wow, Taylor and Isaac, how many things do you need to keep in mind while drafting? Well, a lot, okay? <laughs> this game's really hard. However, the more you practice and try to keep this in mind, the more it'll kind of become like automatic, right? You won't have to critically think about every little step in the way once you have more experience. At yeah, it, yeah, right? exactly. Um, so we've we talked about this a bit in the part one. Right. And we have talked about it a bit in the you know, previous episodes. Um, so we're not going to recap everything about reading your seat here. But I can promise you one thing. If you try to force. <laughs> yeah, listen up. <laughs> if you try to force a hero, you uh, will probably not win the tournament. Right. If you got some secret sauce and know something everybody else doesn't. And you force it, you know, you might get away with it. But in general, right, everybody who tries to force something, you're just like the fifth briar at the table and your deck sucks. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it, it only takes you so far, right? Great strategy, not a great strategy. Okay strategy early in a meta, right? Yeah. So like. Especially if it's not the desired hero. Yeah. By most people. Opening weekend in Road to Nats. You're going to see it. People are like, oh, yeah, you just forced Dromai and you win. That's it. Super easy. Uprising solved. Right? Yeah. She's pretty broken, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just like people are going to say that and then you're going to go to your draft and you're going to try to force it and you're going to be like, God, my deck sucks. And it's like, well, yeah, because everybody now has learned how this set works. So they're a little bit more adapt at reading their seat. And understanding what cards are being picked and when one's art. So the first step, like we talk about in episode one, is to remain open, right? So when you remain open, it means, to recap briefly, that you can pivot to any hero in the draft, right? And so making sure your first couple of choices you make um, allow you that flexibility and then that allows you to read signals about what cards are being picked, right? And that you can then be sending signals, hopefully, to the person you're passing to about what also is being picked. So 
the easy part of this, right, is noticing what cards are left, right? It's like, oh, there's there's three ninja cards in this pack and there's one illusionist and there are no ice cards, right? So I'm thinking, okay, ninja's open. So I'm gonna start picking ninja cards, right? Um, which is okay. That's like surface level way to read um, your seat and what's open. But what you really need to do to take this to the next level is trying to remember the composition of the packs leading up to that moment so that you know what has been picked, not just what remains. Does that make sense? It does. Because as we know in flesh and blood packs, the skew of talent cards in every pack is slightly different, right? Because it's uh, you could have one, you could have more earth cards in one pack, more lightning cards in one pack, you know, differing by ones or twos. But that really matters when uh, cards are being picked and um, we're trying to read the signals. So if you know that there were more of a certain talent card or class card in a certain pack and there still remains that, then you can for sure know that that class or that talent is is open, right? Yeah. And so there's a there's a couple ways to do this, right? Like the first one is easy, right? You pick powerful generics that will perform in any deck. You know, red fate for scene, red scar for a scar, right? This is pretty pretty baseline, pretty easy. You know, those can be pack one, pick ones, whatever. Um, However, this doesn't mean that you cannot pick powerful talent or class cards, right? You should be picking powerful talent or class cards that come your way, right? So there's a few things that happen here, right? If you get past, you know, channel mount heroic, right? If you pass it along, you're sending a very strong signal that earth is open. So on pack two, the person to your left will be gobbling earth up and that will not be open for you. It will also, you know, uh, arm your opponent with a very powerful <laughs> card. <laughs> so you're going to pick this channel Mount heroic, right? You may not play it, but you are, uh, you're getting sent a signal and you are sending some signals, right? And, uh, you're going to take it and it's going to be in your, I want to say in your arsenal, but that's a part of the game. <laughs> it's going to be in your quiver, right? And you can use it. So a lot of times the way that I will stay open is I will have, for example, you know, I'll have, like, let's talk about Monarch, right? Yep. I'll have two generic cards, powerful generics. I'll have two light cards and I'll have two shadow cards and I'll have a soul reaping. Or something like that. You know what oh, I mean? Sick. And then maybe I have, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, just a, a really powerful, you know, prism card or something. You know, Red War Tune. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look at my cards, I only have two generics out of uh, eight cards, right? But I'm still able to pivot into any class I want. Now, I have eight cards, and it's time for me to uh, make up my mind because I only have so many picks left. Right? Correct. But so here, if I pivot into chain, I already have three powerful cards, 
ready to go. Or sorry, five powerful cards, counting the generics, right? right? You know, if I pivot into Bolton, I have four playable cards in this deck, right? Um, so I guess I'm making this point to say that, like, you don't have to forego powerful cards or very yeah. specific powerful cards because you're going to want those for your deck, potentially. You're not going to want to see them in your opponent's deck, and you're not going to want to send that signal that that thing is open in case that's where you want to go, right? Right. What you don't want to do is pick eight old him cards all right in a row <laughs> you know yeah and then find out or like eight ice or old him cards just right out of the gates especially if they're just average cards and you're trying to force it because then you're going to find out the two people to your right were picking earth old him and there's just a lot of cards in the first packs right, right. so you also had some but now they're gonna they're both picking old him and you're screwed right you're, you're not going to have any selection at all throughout the draft. All right. So that was a bit of a... Yeah, no, that was A bit great. of a scenario there, but those I'm are, just trying to explain what, you know... Yeah, those are... That's staying great. open is uh, a little more intricate than just like, oh, I got a bunch of generics. Yeah. I'm ready to go. Yeah, totally. No, it's... Uh, that's a great way to break it down with that bit of math. Um, an example from real life where I was like less good at reading my seat. Uh, I was in a draft... And I was like, I forget who the heroes are that I was sandwiched between, but the only thing I could figure out that wasn't being picked was ice. And I got some arrows. So I had this really weird ice Lexi deck that had so few arrows and it only really had lightning arrows, (laughs) right? So I'm like in this weird zone where I'm flipping up ice cards and then firing free arrows, right? So I'm in this scenario where I play this weird mid-range game that only wins me one out of my three games, but I'm like blocking with two cards, frostbite, free arrow, you know? I'm like trying to play Oldheim, but I only have (laughs) arrows, you know? And the reason I got into that scenario was I was only looking at what cards were passed to think about what was open rather than what cards I had seen and what was left, if that makes sense, right? If I had noticed that this draft had kind of an absurd amount of like ice cards really early on, um, then I would have noticed that the hero cards are the ones that were in short order. So it wasn't that the draft was my people passing to me were just picking hero cards over element cards and i thought i was like one up on them because i was like you need elements everybody they had more clearly the people passing directly to me like the seat next to on my right and to their right had identified that oh there are plenty of uh ice or element cards but the hero cards are in short supply so it kind of flipped the draft on its head a little bit so kind of part way through pack one in the beginning of pack two i was just like sweet i'm gonna be set for class cards um but then it, it wound up like not being the case so i had a really weird seat which i kind of half identified what was open but um it kind of punished me in terms of like my power level compared to everybody else 
But I also had made this weird situation where I'd taken all the ice cards and then the old him next to me had nothing to fuse with and wound up just taking guardian cards. This was really early on. And then they had like a no fuse old time. That was the three for seven, three for six deck and just beat the crap out of everybody, you know? So it was, um, yeah, it was an interesting situation to be in. But if I had more correctly identified what my seat really was and what cards were in the draft, I would have maybe been able to up the power level of my deck by just like a, a smidgen and maybe would have performed better. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and so I, I made my point about, you know, picking select cards from each class, powerful cards, and staying open just because, yeah, like once you're, you know, it's pack seven or, or pick seven or eight or nine or whatever, um, probably a little earlier, hopefully pick seven here. You've now seen enough to make an educated decision about what is open, right? So, you know, I, I always use the example, I, I've pack one, picked one at Channel Mount Heroic, and then like I was maybe the only Lexi at the table, right? I would 100% take that Lexi deck over one in four Briars with a Channel Mount Heroic because right. the way that Aria works is that you don't have one powerful card that wins you the game. You have a consistent deck, Right. And, um, you know, different, different, uh, sets move at different speeds. Right. So you can kind of be aware of that. Like if you're, uh, you know, if you're in welcome to Wraith, you can kind of like maybe lean on your more powerful, powerful cards a little bit better, but, um, yeah. Reading your seat is huge. You can also be, uh, kind of screwed by the people you're playing with, right? People can yeah. change their minds and pivot like way too late they can uh draft really weirdly and send weird signals so you're gonna have to be a bit flexible and dynamic in this situation um but having a clear-cut understanding of uh the heroes and their capabilities and the archetypes in the set will allow you to appropriately weigh which strategies you can still kind of go for yeah yeah you know yeah totally um i think all of that is great I have nothing else on this topic. Would you like to move into tips while playing if you are done? Sure. This little, this little tidbit will uh, kind of lead us into it anyway. Okay, great. <clears throat> um, sometimes I notice, and I'm like unsure exactly how much this helps out, but I'll, I'll definitely notice at a table, some people are like pretty uneasy or uncertain or kind of waffling or maybe pivot or like a bit miserable. Some people are like fairly confident and make their picks quickly and are very assured in their seat. And sometimes you can kind of notice this and you can kind of rely on these people that are uh, a bit more decisive to stay in their lane and make their picks correctly. And again, I'm like unsure how to vocalize how I make use of this, but it's definitely something I notice. And I think that it does give me a bit of data when drafting if like the person to my right is like ironclad in their picks then i can rely on what i'm getting past so maybe i can hedge my bets a little less so or something like that yeah that, that came sense. out a little bit uh <laughs> a little more waffly or unclear <laughs> than i uh, intended <laughs> no i just thought that was some high level shit oh, where good. you're <laughs> you're, you're reading your seat, you're evaluating the cards, you're looking for bombs, and you're playing a game of like reading people's tells all at the same time. 
totally. This I'm is why also, you top aided at nationals and I did yeah. not. I also always play footsie with the person across from me <laughs> to just get in their head. Oh yeah, totally. You know? When when the person sets the <laughs> cards down, I also go for those cards and slowly caress their hand. Yeah. As I get them and stare at them in the eyes. T. Yeah. <laughs> and then I do that, and uh, it's a really interesting draft when you take it to that level. <laughs> I like a little sensuality in my draft. Experience. Yeah, totally. You know, keeps me loose. Keeps me loose. Um, so. Uh, Let's talk about playing the game a bit. Totally. So you drafted, now you're playing. Well, my segue is to piggyback off of something you said about weird signals, right? And that, like we said in episode (laughs) one, is part of the game, right? And then so these tips for playing, well, hopefully when the draft gets weird, like footsies or (laughs) or weird signals or whatever, that then the second half of this whole experience is playing. And so... You then might have had weird signals and you can't get tilted before you play. You just have to continue to play and outplay your opponent, right? Um, yeah, there's a lot of wiggle room in playing tighter than your opponent, right? Yeah. So if you have a pretty good or average deck, you can still pull out games, yeah. right? Two out of three games you can win. Yeah. Um, just through not being too grumpy about your deck or tilted or whatever. Right. There's a whole nother... It's a whole other game you're in now. You're actually just playing the game. Totally. And limited play really emphasizes fundamentals, right? So if you don't have the fundies down, arsenaling correctly, pitch stacking, evaluating the potential damage output of your opponent compared to your own tempo episode whatever that was we did 40 41 go listen to that about tempo if you don't have all of these basics down but you have the most powerful deck you could get still get outplayed by the person sitting next to you who you are like teehee weird signals footsie you know because they have a better understanding of the fundamentals of the game so you still have to play yes even though you've drafted these cards right yeah and uh we've kind of uh I've touched on, I'm going to blow through these because I've touched on this a bit already in this episode, right? But um, like I said, knowing your win conditions, right? I have this win condition. I need to keep my life total at this point or higher and able to be able to take some damage and save the three or four cards or whatever I need to then play to win, right? right? So even if you see your win condition, but you only have seven life left, you're just dead (laughs) because you have to block yeah and can't employ it right right this comes out up quite a lot right like you've crafted your deck you know you've played the game technically well but you have not manufactured um a position where you can execute your win condition right and then you lose i um i want to i want to draft game against somebody who had a better deck and a better game plan than me right i was on like ice old him because that was my seat and I was like, didn't know that that's a bad archetype kind of <laughs> sometimes. I don't know. But, um, and he was on fatigue old him and he would have got me except he took one greedy turn where he chose to take some damage to then deal me a ton of damage. Right. It's a very, in a, you know, a isolated turn. He won that turn. Right. Yeah. A very smart play. Uh, out, you know, outplayed me in terms of just that exchange, right? Very good of him. However, his win condition was fatiguing me, 
and my wind condition was killing him. Right? <laughs> so he got he got that's always a, my wind condition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he had gotten to a low enough life threshold that I pitch stacked my deck, and with like six cards left or whatever, I like. Uh, I might have pumped and fused a glacial or maybe just fused a glacial and like hit him for exactly lethal with like barely any cards left. And that was due to my uh, tight play in that scenario, but would have not have been possible if he did not, or if he had just like stuck to the plan and played every turn to his win condition. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so, it, I mean, that's just an example of a turn in which he beat me that turn and lost the game. Yeah, you know, well played, sir. <laughs> Thanks. I guess <laughs> capitalized on their mistake. Yeah, totally. You know. um, uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of that too. Like, there is a scenario like where you can uh, get open the center to dominate for the win. Also, as ninja, you know. And I, you know, you've done. I've done that before too. Like you keep pitching your open the center back into the deck, and not playing it for like that early burst damage. And then when they get low enough, and they have to like block a Kadachi, block a Kadachi, and then you know, uh, they're you're gonna hit for like one or something with your like go again head jab or whatever, and then you can like go fetch open the center or whatever, you know, things like that. Right. Yeah. Recognizing those things are really, really important rather than just being like damage now is as good as damage later is not usually the case. Yes, definitely. Um, you got anything else there? I lost my spot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so one of our tips earlier was to recognize what has been picked, not just what's what's left over. So some of those things can be like. Uh, how many lightning presses were there? How many turn timbers are there? Um, how many of those turn timbers or lightning presses did I get? So that then you know when you're facing another opponent who can utilize those cards, you can kind of metagame already what they have in their deck and what you have to play around, right? So um, if there were, you saw two red turn timbers but you didn't draft them because you're in a different deck if you come up against old him you can't expect that if you're you're pumping your fused arrow for you know anywhere between six and eight and you're against old him there's a chance that it's gonna just get totally shut down and you'll have played into this like very big turn where you're like i'm gonna deal damage and hit effect and stuff and i'm gonna get some more tempo but then they're just gonna shut you down and steal all of the tempo you just had and now maybe you don't have another red arrow or a red pump or something like that you know yeah and the the situation you describe is a very tough place to be in right because you still have to try right? yeah but so you know maybe you can play around it a bit right where you like uh you you know pitch to load a yellow arrow and you use your yellow pump try to fish that out right and then you arsenal your red pump you know maybe an overflex right so then if you do fish out a turn timber then the next arrow is going to be overflexed hopefully another pump and a red arrow yeah and really capitalize on them misplaying that bit um there's only so much you can do there right but you can try to 
try to look for those kind of, uh, you know, little play arounds maybe to manage your resources. Um, another thing I would say is like these, the, I keep saying the sets vary quite a lot. Yeah. Some sets pitch stacking is crucial. Some sets you're not going to see your pitch stack or just some matchups, right? So understanding if you're trying to burst now or if you're trying to pitch stack and manage resources based on the set you're in, the matchup you're in, and the behavior of your opponent is pretty important. Yeah. Like Arcane Rising is usually slow enough to where, at least I have found, especially in our last draft, that I can like pitch stack with Azalea and then just like loop salvage shots Mm -hmm. for like the win at the end of the game, which... I've got to say, it makes you feel like a shiny golden god when you can do that. <laughs> you know, it's like so fun. Um, but things like Tales of Aria, those games are way too fast. They're over in four turns, right? Yeah. So there's like, unless you're fatigue old him, you know, and you're playing uh, into fatigue old him, there's no reason for you to pitch stack your deck, really. You know what I mean? So you have to kind of weigh the damage output and if your opponent doesn't block how much lower their life total will be and how you know who's going to blink first type of deal can you make that happen can you make a great exchange right um like you can um potentially you might have to block first but you've thought of this so you've like uh kept two cards in hand one to pitch and one to fuse your red entwine earth with so you come in for eight right if it's yeah. the red one which is a huge swing great right? card mid game late game you know and so uh you know that's just another tiny play to consider as well yeah yeah stuff like that these little tips definitely um and yeah how do i phrase this um yeah based on what you've seen taking calculated risks sometimes like uh you know i've been in a scenario where uh i did not see many or any sigil of sufferings and i got the impression based on the packs you see you can kind of get a feel for maybe how many briars there are right like you can't really tell exactly but you can tell if there's like one or four which one's closer right so like i've had the i've had the feeling that there's um, you know, quite a lot of briars and I haven't seen many sigils, right? So I made the decision to go to one, guarantee the win rather than block, threaten some mid-rangey damage, not kill them, and then kind of like rely on some more variants or like hope that I don't brick or whatever, right? right? Um, And that was just based on my opponents didn't have an arsenal and I hadn't, you know, these other factors, right? So... I don't know if that's the right call, but I just went for it, right? Or, um, you know, against old him, <laughs> you know, maybe you're just trying to, like, hope they don't have it, right? So maybe sometimes you're trying to sniff it out, but maybe it's, like, turn one and you have the gas. So I'm just going to I'm gonna roll the dice and bet that they don't have a red turn timber in Arsenal because that would be pretty unfortunate for me, <laughs> you know? I'm going to swing for, like, 12 dominate here and just bank on... You know, they haven't seen that card in the first four cards. Right. You know, so uh, I guess what I'm talking about here is just it's never like a perfect, you know, methodical assessment. Sometimes you're just weighing risk versus reward or, you know, how it feels. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, 
that's a great like even though we're talking about recognizing all of these things you still are like most you're playing the game right and yeah part of the game is just making a calculated risk right or unknowns and variants yeah totally a bit of a gamble that could pay off quite well right i can't play around this if i do i just don't win so i'm just gonna go for the win right right uh yeah stuff like that for sure um i can no longer think of any examples i believe i have said my piece on this subject me too i think we've been at this long enough um I hope you guys have really enjoyed um, this episode and this set of uh, tandem episodes on draft. We really love draft and, um, you know, tried to share most of what we've learned with Mm -hmm. you all. And I hope you've picked up some tidbits. If you have any hot takes or tips or different takes or disagreements that we have missed or misconstrued or, um, you know, misunderstood or whatever uh you know you can uh contact us you can like put them in the the comments on our youtube or whatever you right. know let us know this is a draft is a <laughs> a game that no one's mastered right because it's always a different puzzle yeah and it's about your performance on the fly yeah and i i really want to reiterate what isaac said there like Please feel free to have a conversation with us about the topics we talk about on this podcast, even though they might not be public, right? Slide into our DMs on Twitter. Um, send us an email, right? Those sort of things. We would be more than happy to engage with you on certain topics or maybe re-explain them over uh, DMs or whatever. Um, that would be super great for us. Also, side note, I keep forgetting to mention this. Uh, I'm kind of locked out of our Instagram page right now. There's some sort of weird error in Instagram's code that I had to input our birthday. And then I chose (laughs) we were one year old. And then they're like, well, you have to be 13. So you have to to prove that you're not 13. And I was like, but this is a business. So anyway, it won't let me log. I have to prove I'm not a one-year-old using your Instagram page. Yeah. (laughs) I I know. Yeah. And so now there's like an error when I try to log back in that is like not resolved. So if you're like wondering why it's like dark over there and maybe you're sending us cool stuff, I can't see it. So get a Twitter or email us if you don't want a Twitter. So Or when we break back in, we'll get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, all that. Uh, Isaac, I believe you have a riddle me this. Yep, this was a dense episode. We're going to skip our segments. But I do have a riddle me this that's a bit out of the ordinary. It's mostly just based on spoilers. But riddle me this. What is up with these dual specializations referencing Phoenix Flames? Right? We have no indication of how Dromai uses Phoenix Flames. Why does her specialization interact with them? Why isn't it just a five specialization? Please just tell me already, LSS. <laughs> It's a lot of debate in my head. (laughs) Totally. Uh, Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate all of you. Uh, We will hopefully see you soon or talk to you soon. And I hope you have a great day. We both hope you have a great day or evening or afternoon. Yep. Whatever time it is for you. Totally. Good evening. (laughs) And we'll see you next time. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at the Attack Action Podcast. On Twitter, we are at BattleBroTaylor and at BattleBroIsaac. Shoot us an email, theattackactionpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to support us, like and subscribe, shop for singles using our affiliate link, or support our Patreon for as little as $4 per month.